If you are new with us, we are walking through the book of Romans, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are finishing chapter 6 today, the second half of chapter 6. And as I read, let's stand together out of respect for God's Word, Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. It says this, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach it, that I would preach your truths, not merely my own thoughts. I pray that you would open our hearts that we would be receptive to these things, that you would shape us and mold us to look like Jesus for, for our good and for His sake and for His glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach to you this morning on this text and under the title, Be Who You Are. Be Who You Are. This past week, I had the opportunity to be in West Virginia with our missions team there. The majority of them are still there. As soon as this service is over, I'm hopping in the van and driving back to West Virginia to pick them up. So if anybody's up for a road trip, let me know, and I'll let you drive and take the van, and I'll stay here. Um, and then I'm coming back. But anyway, uh, while I was there, man, it is, uh, it's a different world in West Virginia. It's beautiful. Baltimore's beautiful, too. It's a different kind of beauty out there. Uh, you have these long, winding roads with humps. And what I discovered is if you do about 55 in a 15-passenger van over the humps, you get this close to catching air. And so it was just like a wonderful roller coaster the whole time we were there. And at nighttime, this is what's crazy for us city people, at nighttime, it's dark. Can you imagine a dark night? Uh, it's really, really dark. 
And no, there's no streetlights. So at, at one point, I'm driving with our team at night, and it's very dark, and I take a wrong turn, which is a bad idea in West Virginia. That's a movie reference. Sarah, it's a, nothing against West Virginia. Um, it's just a movie reference. But anyway, I took a wrong turn nonetheless, all right? And uh, uh, um, the, I, I was on the, the darkest, most narrow, wind, winding road that you can imagine, all right? And it was foggy out. I mean, it was a dark night. And so we just, for a moment, stopped the car and turned all the lights off just to, just to feel how dark it was. And then one of our uh, new interns, Zamar, started talking about the darkness of sin and hell. And I was like, this is appropriate. You want to know how dark sin is? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the oppressive nature of darkness? Like even driving in West Virginia, maybe you'd get used to it if you live there, but after 10 minutes of winding through these foggy, dark roads... And then getting to our host home where, where it's filled with light, it was almost like this whole rejuvenation, like this uplifted spirit that I would feel. Because there is something oppressive about the darkness. There's something scary about the darkness. A couple hundred years ago, the preacher Jeremiah Burroughs put it this way. He said, sin is so evil that it is not capable of any good at all. Though the air can be dark, it is capable of light. He said that would, that would be a dismal darkness that was not capable of light coming into it. Things can be bitter, though never so bitter that it is inescapable of receiving that which would sweeten. Even venom is capable of such things that will make it wholesome. What he's saying is, is like all of these really bad things that we can think of that we use as analogies for sin are really all imperfect analogies. They don't fully communicate how bad sin really is. Meaning, you might think the rattlesnake is venomous, which it is, but there's a medicine that can counter the symptoms of the venom. You might think coffee is bitter, but you can put sugar in it and sweeten it. You might think uh, a dark night in you know, the country, in West Virginia, is really dark, but it's not so dark that light can't pierce through it and lighten the day within eight hours. He says these are all imperfect analogies. Why? This is what he says. He says, but sin is so dark that it is incapable of light. Sin is so dark that it is incapable of light. So bitter that there is no way to make it sweet. It is so venomous that there is no way to make it wholesome. That's how bad sin is. And so then we come to this text and we read something like in verse 18 where it says, Christians have been set free from sin. Church, do you understand that to be set free from sin is no small change? We are once wrapped in darkness. 
And now we are wrapped in marvelous light. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself says that if you're a Christian, you are light. You are the light of the world, he says. God so regenerates us that he transforms us from an incapable kind of darkness to a marvelous light. When God regenerates a lost person and turns them into a Christian, he doesn't make them a different version of their old man, but he makes them a new man. He makes them a new creature. Once united with sin, now united with Jesus. That's what we've been at in Romans. That's what we've been looking at. And so Paul now says in this text simply this, now be who you are. Two simple things, know what you were and know now who you are. And now that you're this, don't be like what you were, but be who you are. That's my explanation of Romans 6, 15 through 23. Romans chapter 1 through 5, as you know who've been studying this with us as a church, has been just really parading the grace of God. Starting off in Romans 1, telling us how bad we are, or how bad we were, how much we needed a Savior, and what Christ has done to save us by His grace, not by works of righteousness. This then leads us to a question, which is asked by Paul in verse 1 of chapter 6. If we are saved by grace, if there's nothing that you have to do in order to receive the gift of salvation, doesn't that kind of lead to lawlessness? Doesn't that lead to just like a crazy sinful lifestyle? So he asked that question in verse 1, and he answered it in a surprising way. He didn't say, no, it's because you have more willpower than the, other, than the non-Christian. He says, no, you won't continue in habitual ongoing sin because you're in union with Christ. And then he, he concludes that we are not under the law, but we're under grace. The law is a terrible motivator for righteousness. It cannot save. The law cannot deliver. Only grace can do that. But then in verse 15 of chapter 6, which we read this morning, he re-asks that antagonistic question. So wait, what does this mean? If we're not under the law, does that mean that we should just go on in sin? And as Tony has already stated, he gives a forceful denunciation to this. Tony, you should have said, by no means. By no means. It's as strong of a denunciation as he can come up with. And then he gives us his main idea in verse 16. Look at the text with me. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? It's simple logic. And then he explains what he means. How does this relate to sin? He says, Well, you're either in sin, which leads to death, or you're obedient or, 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 I'm sorry, you are of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul is simply saying that we can show who we belong to, sin or Jesus, by how we live our life. It's simple. 
if I, if we, if you obey righteousness, then we're showing that we belong to Jesus. If we continually and habitually obey our passions of sin, he's saying it, it looks like you are a slave to sin. That's who you are. Because, here's the logic, you're a slave to the one that you obey. And the end result of slavery to sin is death. How bad is sin? How dark is sin? Its ending, church, is death. Now, this is difficult for moral people because the moral person hears this and says, well, I'm not a slave to sin. You know, I do pretty good. I am pretty self-controlled. I lead a pretty good life. I do good things. I'm disciplined. But the Bible comes along and says, well, you you don't really understand sin. Because sin is not merely just bad things or a lack of discipline. Sin can even be why we are a disciplined individual. It can be pride. It can be self-centeredness. It can simply be not believing that we need a Savior. But then the immoral person comes along and agrees with this text and says, oh, I, I am a slave to sin, and I can't stop. And so watch me go on and on and on on these cycles of sin. Well, they don't understand that there is a Savior to be found. There is something called regeneration. There is a new creation that you can become through Christ. You see, the gospel is totally different. But the gospel begins with sin, understanding sin and how sinful sin actually is. It is the all-consuming life that we are born into. Sin is our nature that we are born into. It is natural for us. It is unnatural for the sinner to pursue holiness or godliness. And sin leads to death. Now, sometimes that does mean an early physical death. I mean, if you think about it, that's true. There are some sins, if you continue in them, you will likely die sooner than if you do not. I mean, think of, you know, uh, uh, the sin of intoxication through drugs and alcohol will lead you to an early death. Gluttony, even something like worry, all right, anger and violence, these things are likely going to lead to an early death. But don't just think that Paul's talking about a physical death. We can also understand this really metaphorically. That sin, all sin kills in a metaphorical kind of sense. I mean, uh, 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 sin kills time. Sin kills relationships. Sin kills friendships. Sin kills work ethic. Sin kills your confidence. Sin kills careers, and I could go on. But all sin whether it's the kind that leads to physical death sooner than later or whether it's the metaphorical kind of death on earth, 
All sin leads to eternal death, and that is because sin is ultimately against God. That's where sin takes us, to death because sin is against God. And I think my problem is that I too often judge the sinfulness of sin based on my own standard, based on how well I've been or how well I used to be versus how I am now, or based on maybe somebody else, I'm not as bad as that guy. But no, the the standard for righteousness is not me or you or another human being, but it's God Himself. We don't measure sin's sinfulness against ourselves. Sin must be examined with God as the backdrop and as the standard, as the measuring stick. Are you with me? All this to say, church, sin cannot be redeemed. Only people can be redeemed. And this is what this text is about, is that God through Christ has come as our Redeemer and has freed us from the impenetrable darkness and brought us into His marvelous light. And so look at verse 17. Paul turns to praise, he says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin. Don't you love how Paul always like just goes on praise breaks? He's walking through doctrine and then he can't help himself as he's, I'm I'm pretending he's typing on his Mac, you know, 2,000 years ago. Praise be to God. Because as soon as he thinks about the sinfulness of sin and the slavery of sin, he thinks about the Roman Christians. And he says, oh, I praise God for the fact that this is not who you are any longer. Praise be to God. Praise be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. The only way out of this slavery is death. And what Paul's saying is, is that you have died with Christ, union with Christ, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 6. You've died. And as a result of your death, Mr. Sin is no longer your slave master. You've been raised, and you now have a new owner, meaning nobody's really free. We're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness through Christ in God. This happens through death. It's powerful imagery. This is the imagery that Paul uses to describe what theologians call regeneration, Becoming made new, that's when the Holy Spirit moves into your life at the moment of conversion and changes you completely. Rebirth, transformation, regeneration. How does this happen? This happens by grace. Look at, back at verse 17, look at these passive verbs. He says, verse 17, you've become obedient. That's passive. Verse 18, he says, you've been set free. 
Verse 22, you've been set free. Verse uh, verse 22, you uh, you have become slaves to God. Verse 23, this is a free gift. This is all passive. This is stuff that we're receiving. It's not something we're doing. Meaning nobody can free themselves from this kind of slavery. This is something that happens happens to you. And don't you understand that we call that, come on somebody, grace. There's the word. It is grace. It's all God's grace. I heard a story of a man who bought a mouse and put it in a tank with his snake. And the mouse starts freaking out, scurrying around, and immediately begins putting sawdust on top of the snake to the point where he he completely buries the snake in sawdust. And then the mouse could chill. He, He was a happy little mouse sitting in the corner. He believed burying the snake to where he couldn't see it, out of sight, out of mind, took care of the problem. Don't you know this is often how we see sin, as long as we can bury it, as long as we, we can, uh, as long as we don't have to see it, as long as we can somehow deal with our own guilt, then we're good to go. What the, what the mouse needed was for that master to reach his hand in and deliver him from the cage See, salvation doesn't stop with freedom from guilt. It includes our freedom from guilt, but salvation is also God reaching His hand into that cage where sin is our slave master, and through His power, through His action, delivering us by His grace to the point where we now desire holiness. So getting back to this question in verse 15, why not continue in habitual sin, deliberate habitual sin? Paul says, well, it's because we don't want to. Yet we still sin. I'm not saying that there is a, I'm not saying that sin has lost its lure. Sin in our flesh, as long as we are in these bodies, is always going to have an attraction to us. There's always going to be some kind of temptation that we struggle with, some kind of lure. And every Christian falls at times into the lure of sin. But there's a change at a deeper level that has taken place that doesn't allow us to remain there and to continue in that over and over and over. Yes, there may be some patterns and cycles in your life of sin. But a Christian is someone who hates that and is fighting back against it and is wrestling against it. Why? Well, look at the text in verse 17. Again, he says that that the Christian has become obedient from the heart. It's not just our hands or our actions, but from the heart we've become obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 17 is a theological mouthful. i got to break this down for you. The standard of teaching, 
We're obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Somebody say standard of teaching. This is likely some kind of early catechism that he's referring to, a standard, a pattern of teaching that the Romans would have had that when somebody becomes a Christian and they're baptized, they give them the pattern, the standard of teaching. These are the doctrines of the gospel, the stories of the gospel, the doctrines of Christ, and also the morals of what it means to be a Christian. The standard of teaching. And then he says, to which you were committed. Somebody say, committed. This is interesting. Committed means to be handed over to the power of another. Uh, like if you were to be committed uh, to a, um, an institution, you were handed over to the power of that institution. Christians aren't people who have received the teachings of Christ. Christians are people who have been handed over to the teachings of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Just that turn. I mean, as we think about like discipleship, you're not asking them to receive what God has taken as much as you are saying, I am committing you to the power of these things. And what he's saying is is that from from our hearts, obedience from the heart... We, we, we obey the standard, or at least we want to obey, the standard of teaching to which we are committed, set free from sin. Christians are now then slaves of righteousness. This is his, this is his analogy. We're not set free from sin so that we can do whatever we want to do. He said we're set free from sin so that we can be committed to God yeah. under the power of God a servant of God, a slave of God. And now in verse 19, Paul sort of apologizes even for using the slavery analogy because Paul understands that this really is not even the best analogy. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But then he goes on to explain why he's using the analogy of slavery. Verse 19 continues, for just as you were once presented, uh, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What he's simply saying is this, is my, he's basically saying, my analogy is not perfect, but I'm using the best analogy that we can wrap our minds around with our limited understanding as human beings. And here's the analogy. You were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to God. That's who you were. Application. Be who you are. Be set free from sin and be a slave unto God. Paul's two points are my two, two points for this sermon. Number one, who you were. Number two, who you now are. Application. Be who you are. Who you were. You were slaves to sin. You presented your members as slaves to impurity. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Uh, the, the, the actions that we would 
contribute to or participate in led only to shame ultimately would lead to death. But who are you now? Obedient from the heart, set free from sin, slaves of righteousness. So, say it with me, be who you are. How? Present your members. This goes back to our last study. Present your members as slaves of righteousness, which leads to sanctification. And you might say, well, wait a second. I know I'm a believer. I know I'm a Christian, but I still at times feel like I'm a slave to sin. Like, how do I, how do I appropriate this into my life when it feels as if sin has such a stronghold on me? It's the same application. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. If that's you, church, number one, first, know that you are free. Even if you don't always feel free. If you are in Christ, know that you are freed from sin. And that, that, that matters, that makes a difference how we think of ourselves if it's true really makes a difference. It's, it's as if we're a freed prisoner sitting in a, a, sitting in a cell with chains put back on our, uh, on our wrists, but the chains are unlocked and the door's wide open. The first thing you need to know, prisoner, is that you are free. Walk out of the prison. Know that you're free. Know that we are free, even when we don't feel like it. And secondly, practice presenting your members to God. We've got to practice this. It's almost like somebody who has been, uh, you know, transformed into an alive human being who can learn how to, to play the piano. And overnight, you want to be a virtuoso and play all over the place. But the problem is, is that you've got to learn the notes and you've got to learn the scales. That's sanctification. We want to be playing a beautiful song immediately. And we get frustrated with ourselves because we're not. But it's much simpler than that. Every day, every minute of every day, practice presenting your members as slaves of righteousness to God. You know, say, my mouth belongs to God. My hands belong to God. My feet belong to God. My strength belongs to God. My mind belongs to God. And then seek to make decisions as a servant of God. That's what sanctification is. Yes, we continue to sin, but not in the way we used to. Christians ought to be sinning less and more and more looking like slaves of righteousness. The great preacher of North Africa, Augustine, put it like this. He said there are three stages in his own life of his own dealing with, dealings with sin. He said, the first stage is this, quote, Lord, make me good, but not yet. The second stage for Augustine is this, quote, Lord, make me good, but not entirely. And then he said his third stage was, quote, Lord, make me good, period. You see, some of you are in that first stage, Lord, make me good, but not yet. There's a sense in which you 
want to live for God and live for holiness and godliness, but maybe down the road, because today you've got some plans. Some of you might be in that second stage. Lord, make me good, but not entirely. I want to do certain things good, and I want to be part of the church, and I want to look good, and I want to go through some certain motions and love my neighbor better, but there's this part of me that I, that I really love that I don't want to give up. God made me good, but not, not all of me. I pray that we all move to that third stage. And this, is, this is Christian sanctification. This is the prayer of Christian sanctification. Lord, make me good, period. Even these even my plans that I want to get to today, God, change my plans. Even that part of me that I want to cling to and hang on to, God, even there, make me good. What is our incentive for all of this? Oh, by the way, we should ask this question. Do we need an incentive for all of this? Like, I, could, I feel like the the uber-spiritual Christian would come along and say, hey, we should just obey God with no incentives. Just obey Him. And I think they're right. It's true. But at the same time, don't you realize that humans are actually wired for incentives? Like uh, yesterday, I was talking to my son Chapman on the phone, and one of our loved ones was in the hospital, and he said... Uh, but she's okay because she has a sticker. She got a sticker. You know, try to take a, try to take a child to the dentist. They don't want to go. But if you tell them, if you go, you'll get a sticker. You see that incentive? All right. I'll let the doctor drill in my teeth for a sticker. Yeah. Our, and then you get older and you're like, no, those incentives don't work anymore. <laughs> but don't think that you're beyond incentives. The incentives just change. Listen, we are wired for incentives. And I, I love what God does. God condescends to our level and gives us incentives. Does God have to give us incentives to be the lawgiver? Eric preaching on the lawgiver last Sunday, does he? Absolutely not. He has the right. He is the judge. He is the lawgiver. He is the one who's freed us. He doesn't need to give us any incentives. He could just simply say, obey me. I've, I've, I've saved you from your sins. Obey me. But God, in love, because he wants us to live our lives to maximize our glory to Christ, God gives us incentives. And we can call these incentives spiritual fruit. This is what Paul does as we close this text out. Paul shows us the incentives. He gives us a then and now. He says, remember your fruit back then? You don't want that. That was bad. This is the fruit that you can have as a slave to righteousness. In verse 20, 21, he looks at fruit then. He says, just remember the way things used to be. They brought shame. You lived in shame. That was the fruit of being a slave to sin, shame. Lawlessness, ultimately it was death. 
But look at fruit now, verse 22. He says, but now you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God. So the fruit you get leads to sanctification, that is becoming good, and to its end, eternal life. Slave to sin, fruit, end, death. End of our slavery to righteousness, eternal life. And then there is this famous verse which summarizes the whole thing, verse 23. We get life because of God's free gift, not death. That's our motivation. That's our incentive, to live a life that leads to life, a life that leads to flourishing even now. Holiness is not just like rigidly, you know, doing the right thing. It's actually life. It's life-giving to you and to those around you. It is flourishing. As we love each other, as we care for the hurting, as we love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, it leads to life now, but even more so eternal life after death. One author put it this way. He said, eternal life is the sequel, somebody say sequel, to a life pursuing holiness on earth. I'm not a big fan of sequels. I tend to believe that Hollywood typically makes the wrong decision when they say, that movie went so well, let's do a second. And usually it's because that the second wasn't thought of when they wrote the first. I mean, think of Home Alone. You know they were not thinking of Home Alone 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 8, and 7, when they wrote the first Home Alone. Anyway. But listen, our sequel, our sequel is like our ultimate destination. Our God, 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 has, God saves the best for last with us. Like this, this life we live now is part one. But it's leading us to the ultimate destination, to the conclusion, which is the sequel, which is eternal life. That's our incentive. Three layers of examination as we close. Number one. Have you been born again? Are you a slave to God or are you a slave to sin? If freedom from habitual and continual sin isn't experienced, then it's possible you are a slave to sin and not a slave unto God. Have you ever been born again? Are you a new creation? Have you experienced this rebirth? Have you been freed from the power of sin's slavery? A simple test could be this. Regenerate Christians don't beat themselves over the head in order to obey God. They want to obey God. Is that you? 
when somebody does point out your sin, do you respond positively? Yes, it might be embarrassing. Yes, there might be some friction immediately. But ultimately, are you thankful for the fact that someone, someone had the willingness to point out your sin? Because in your heart, you want to obey God. Is that you? Are, are you born again? Now, second layer of examination would be this. Some of you are born again. You are freed, but you don't always look like it. You don't always act like it. We're not really producing fruit. You know, it's possible to have all of the right theology and the right doctrine and just not really producing much fruit. Christians will produce fruit. No fruit, no Christian. But it's possible for Christians to produce a little bit of fruit and be like a sickly tomato tree that is giving you some little tomatoes, but it's not much. Present your members to God and begin to grow in your sanctification. Thirdly, would be the fruit-bearing Christian. The Christian who confesses their sins when they sin. When they trip up, they realize it, they fight against it. They've learned to present their members to God, and they're doing that more and more and more, and they're fruit-bearing. There's fruit in their life. When we were in West Virginia, we were driving down one of these long, winding roads and we came upon an orchard, an apple orchard. And Marla, who was sitting in the passenger seat, said to me, those are some fruit-bearing trees. They are leaning over with their fruit. And I said, man, wouldn't that be great if the world were to say that of us? If they were to look at the garden church and our people, and the more they get to know us, if they were to say, man, those are some fruit-bearing trees. And then Marla added, they're leaning over with fruit. Mmm, that'll preach. Slap your neighbor and say, I want to lean over with fruit. Are we a fruit-bearing bunch? Are we leaning over with fruit, church? Saints, the, the light of Christ doesn't merely work its way through the darkness, but the light of Christ removes the darkness completely and replaces it with itself, the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Why? Because on that cross, Jesus attacked and conquered the final bastion of sin, and that is death itself. He looked death straight in the face, and he dealt with death. I can't end my sermon without reading verse 23. It says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Wages was an old military language for the payment that a soldier would get. What he's saying is, is the payment that soldiers of sin get is what they deserve, and that is death. 
Are you a servant of sin or a servant of God? One receives wages earned and the other receives a gift. There was a father driving down the road with his son. They were in a pickup truck and a, 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 a bee flew into the cab of the truck. And he's buzzing around and his son is deathly allergic to bees. And as the bees flying around, the bee flies past the son's face and the son starts freaking out and his father's big hand slams the bee into the window and his daddy produces his hand and shows how the stinger of the bee is now in his own finger. And he says, you need not fear, I took the sting out. Don't you understand, church, that God took the sting out of death through the death of Christ? We're told in the Bible that the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer under law. We are a slave to sin. Or we are no longer a slave to sin. Therefore, there is no sting in death. The last enemy to destroy was death itself. And Jesus destroyed death. If you are in the Son, you have been set free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. Oh, and true freedom is slavery to God. Thanks be to God that we who were once slaves to sin have now become obedient from the heart. May our prayer be, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Father, we thank You for this text. We ask, God, that You would help us to know that we, through the gospel, have been set free from sin and that we would present ourselves as slaves unto righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.